You know, I love that video. I, I don't know if you relate to it at all, um, but it's just this idea that life is hard. And, and when life gets hard, and it seems like sometimes it comes at us from all different a- avenues and all different directions, and we just lose sight of what's really helpful. We lose sight of what's really important, and it, it kills our joy. It takes away our joy in almost every way. And we get consumed with the problem, or we get consumed with the relationship that isn't functioning, or we get consumed with the work, or we can get consumed with the health, and we just forget. We forget that there's hope. We forget that there's help. We forget that there's Jesus, and we start spiraling. You know, we're, we're in the middle of this series, though, that's entitled Finding Joy. And we've been going through Philippians, and Paul writes this book to the Philippians because clearly they had just gotten lost along the way. Life had happened, and they started arguing, they started fighting, they started losing sight of what was really important. And so he writes this letter, and we find ourselves in chapter 3 today, and he kind of comes back to this whole idea Remember Jesus. I mean, that's what he talks about. So today, kind of akin to this whole series that we've been doing, I want you to turn to your neighbor, and I want you to talk about this question for about 20 seconds. I want you to ask them this question. What makes you a winner? What makes you a winner? Let's do that for about 20 seconds, and then attention back up here. Okay, kind of verifying last service. This wasn't the best question I've come up with so far is what I'm hearing. Okay, that's fine. I think I like the question, though, because it does this. No matter what your answer is, okay, and there's a lot of varied answers that you can give, they all have one thing in common. And, and the one thing that they have in common is they tend to bring incredible joy to your life. And whether that is kind of simple like your college football team winning or it's more serious like you just got a remission you know, sentenced from cancer, and so now you're okay for the going ahead, or whether it's looking at your kids and knowing that they believe, and they're bringing their families, and you know they'll be in heaven with you one day, or whatever it is that bring you joys. There's probably different levels. What makes us a winner in life, those things are how we answer that question. I'll do that very thing. And so as Christians, if we wouldn't lose perspective, if we wouldn't forget Jesus, we wouldn't forget heaven, all those different things, probably more than anybody else in the whole world, it would seem like we would feel like winners all the time, wouldn't it? We should, because Jesus said, you already have victory. And why did he say that we already have victory? So that our joy, he says, might be made complete. That if we could remember in the midst of life, in the midst of coming at us from all directions, in the midst of the difficulty, that God is still there with us. That this is temporary and that one day we'll be with him forever. If we could remember those things, we'd have more joy in our life. So, It's interesting, then, that after a while, Christians seem to, at least, lose their joy a little bit. They start off great. They're joyful. They're so filled with enthusiasm and love, they can barely contain it. They're filled with the reality that Jesus loves them, which is big, because before they didn't know that anybody loved them. They realize that he's forgiven them of everything, which blows their mind. That he has a place for them in heaven, which gives them assurance. But as time goes by, it seems like we spring a leak someplace, and all that joy kind of ekes out of us. But how did it get that way? What kind of things is it that that killed our joy? And just as a frame of reference, when you came in this morning, were you excited about Jesus? Is that why you came? Or were you just checking off the box, you know, hey, we came to church today? Or were you excited about Jesus when you got in the car to come to church, and then you started bickering and fighting on the way, and you lost the joy? 
or maybe you didn't get your seats or whatever it might be. Are you so excited right now you can barely contain your enthusiasm because of what Jesus has done for you? If not, what is it that's killed your joy? I, I think that's because there's a lot of killed joys in life, and that's the reoccurring theme of this book in Philippians. Paul talks about joy 17 different times in this book, and he keeps on repeating himself, which, by the way, is a great teaching technique. But he says this in verse 1 of chapter 3, which is where we are, and he says this. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. He's saying, find joy in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same thing to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. In other words, Paul was really concerned about the Philippians. They had lost sight of the main thing. Remember, they had been fighting. We talked about priority and perspective and all those different things. They had lost sight of all those. And so Paul's concerned, and so he writes them again in chapter 3, because I guess they forgot after the first two chapters, and he says, Hey, I want you to focus on Jesus. He is the secret to joy in life. And so as he goes through, he gives us in these, these 11 verses, he gives us, I'll call, three safeguards to how do you keep the joy happening here? How do you keep it from going away or, or, or leaking out or whatever it is? How can you come in to church on Sunday morning, be excited about what he's going to share with you in the message, be excited about the hug that you get at communion, be excited about the words that you are forgiven? So that's what we're going to talk about today. And I'm going to give you three pieces of advice that he gives us, and then we're going to talk about the safeguards after each one. And one of the first things he says to us is we've got to get to a place where we resist legalistic attitudes. Why? Because legalism destroys joy in your Christian life. It can ruin families, it can ruin people, it can ruin churches, you name it. So legalism is what we were talking about when we said, when we talked about that church that was going to re-carpet the sanctuary, and they were all excited, right? And, and, and they put a committee together, and they formed Two opinions. One part of the committee wanted the red carpet, and the other part wanted the green carpet, and they couldn't agree, so they split the church. They got all excited, made law, green carpet or red carpet, depending on the side, and they lost sight of Jesus, and they killed the unity, and they killed their joy, and they split the church. So I want to talk about what is legalism for I think it's a great question. We don't usually hear it a whole lot outside the courtrooms, but legalism is substituting rules and regulations for our relationship with Jesus. And we do that lots of times, just in innocent ways. I think it, it comes very subtly on a believer. I'll ask somebody, how's your faith? You know, or how's your walk with Jesus? Or, or how are you doing with Jesus? And they'll say, I'm doing great. I'm doing devotions. I'm praying all the time. I don't hardly ever miss church. I went to this mission thing, and they keep telling me all the things they're doing. When, to be honest, how are you doing with Jesus? You could just say, man, I'm doing great. He loves me. I'm forgiven. He keeps giving me strength to face these different struggles in my life. He's a constant presence in my life as I'm going through. He continues to remind me of his promises. I have more peace than I've ever experienced, more joy than I can contain, more happiness, more, more perspective than I've ever hoped. But we lose sight of that, and we go to the things that we're doing. And for whatever reason, that's never seemingly enough. It comes very, again, subtly on a believer, but this is what it does. It gets the focus off what God has done for you, and it gets your focus on what you're doing for God. And when you flip that around, it always kills your joy. I'll give you another example. I ask this in a lot of different settings. I'll ask, what is the main reason that you go to church? What drives you to go to church? And the number one answer I get is this. We go to give our praise and our thanks to God. Who's doing the action? You guys are. 
problem with that is that sometimes we don't feel like praising God because life's been hard, and sometimes we don't like, want to thank him because we're not very appreciative for what's going on right now. And sometimes we just feel like we can do it from home, and so we, we miss or we don't go. The only reason we should go to church is for what we receive. At least that's what God says. And when we come, what do we get? We get his gifts. We get reminded that we're forgiven. You hear that in the, in the confession absolution time, that forgiveness, right? That you're forgiven. That's a big deal. Why? Because we forget it all the time. We walk around with so much guilt. Usually as we go through life, we forget. So hearing those words is important. Do you come in with this anticipation too that on Sunday morning that God just might have something to say to you? I mean, that's what the sermon's for, right? And I write these like seven weeks in advance, so there's no way I could plan for what happened this week for you. So if God speaks to you through a message, it's because he had it for you specifically that day. I get so excited when I'm on vacation or something like that, and I go to a church because I haven't planned any of this. And, and, and every single time, God shares something with me in that word that, that changes my perspective, my life, forg- gives me forgiveness, a word of condemnation sometimes if I haven't quite gotten to repentance and a sin. Whatever it is, he, he uses it powerfully. And I get excited about the message especially. Sometimes you've got to work harder. Okay, fair enough. You guys are all here. You can testify to that. But, but the reality is that there's always something for you. And then I get excited about communion. Why? Because it's there that he gives me his hug. And he promises to be there present with us, right? He promises that as he wraps us up in his arms that he's got it, that we're forgiven, that he'll give us strength to fight the next battle the next day. And yet, I can talk about all those things. You know, like, yeah, whatever. Because we haven't let him in to the scariest, the hardest, the most intimate parts of our life where that we need him the most. We're like running backs that are stiff-arming God and keeping him at a distance lest he get too close and we have to deal with something too real. And when we keep him at arm's distance, we, we don't have joy. We, we diminish our joy. In fact, this problem has been around for thousands of years. In, in the early New Testament, the legalizers were called the Judaizers. They were a group of people who said, yes, believe in Jesus, trust him with all your heart, but there's some things that I want you to add to your faith to make sure you're really a Christian. So it's Christ plus works, that's what they'd say. So they said, yes, Jesus is important, but you must keep every one of the Jewish laws to become or to be a believer. So keep the Sabbath laws, the circumcision laws, the dietary laws, and on and on. In fact, whenever Paul would hear about the Judaizers, he would get furious because they were teaching something that wasn't true. They were making them believe that it was about what they were doing and not what Jesus had done. So Philippians 3, Paul attacks them, and, and he, these Judaizers that are trying to steal the joy of the, the Christians in Philippi, and he says this in verse 2 and 3. He says, watch out for those who do evil, those dogs, men who insist on cutting their bodies. We worship God in his spirit and rejoice in our life in Christ Jesus. We do not put any trust in external circumstances. He says, it's not about all this other stuff. It's about Jesus. Now, he talks about dogs. I mean, when we think of dogs, at least in my family, we think of these warm, cuddly pets that drool everywhere. I mean, that's what we think of, you know. But dogs in the New Testament times weren't weren't usually pets. They were scavengers, and they would attack humans, especially if there was food involved. It was the worst thing you could think of to call someone a dog. And so how do you keep yourself from falling into this sort of thinking? Paul gives us this first safeguard, and he just says this. We've got to live each day by grace. That's a churchy word. It just means that it's God's unconditional love for you. Grace is the key to joy because it's where we remember that Jesus is what matters. He's, it's what he did that matters. The two words go together. They have the same root in the Greek. 
to realize that everything that God does in you or through you is by grace rather than working it or earning it. And when you realize it's because of Jesus that we're saved or because of Jesus that we can find strength or hope or whatever, and not about us, it gives us joy. Paul even uses himself in this, and he tries to use himself to, to explain that rules and regulations just didn't work for him. He says this in verse 4. He said, though I myself have reason for such confidence, you know, hoping in what I'm doing. My, my devotions are great, he's saying. I'm, I, I'm always on mission trips. I mean, he's just listing the list. He goes, if anyone thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, flawless. You could just hear him saying, bam, after each one, just trying to, to kind of minimize how chuffed they were getting in their, their attacks on him. But Paul says, if you want to compare lists, he goes, yeah, I got you beat. And I was one of the fast risers in the pharisaical realm. I got you beat. And the reality is that Paul had kept all the rules. You know, when we think of Pharisees, I, I think we think of hip, hypocrites. I mean, Jesus kind of used that a lot. But there were some genuine, sincere ones, too. They were the spiritually elite of the age. They were trying to follow God in all the things that he had called them to do. They even took the Ten Commandments, and they put 619 other commandments around the Ten Commandments, lest they ever... That, let's say, would ever break one of the ten. I mean, so they kind of put barriers around each one of the Ten Commandments so they would never, ever break one. The problem over time was that the commandments became the big thing and they forgot why they created them in the first place. They forgot the purpose. They forgot the meaning. They forgot the reason. Let me give you some examples of how far they lost it. A Pharisee would not even eat an egg if it were laid on the Sabbath because it was considered work. If it got bit my mosquito on the Sabbath, he would not scratch it because that was considered work. They were pros at rules and regulations. They had lost perspective. And so Paul says this in the end. It's, it's just not going to matter, all these things. Because in the end, all the works in the world still leave us without a Savior. And that's where Jesus comes in. You see, the reason we need Jesus is because he's the only one that takes away our sins. Do you, do you guys get that? We all have sin. We all fall short. And, and I think in our culture, we lose sight of the fact that God hates sin. That's why he sent the flood, was because of sin. It's why he decimated mankind. Because of, it's why he'll come again and judge between the believers and the unbelievers and destroy the unbelievers. It's because of sin. We forget how much God hates it. And he said, if you sin, you deserve to go to hell unless you have Jesus. And if you have Jesus, not only will I forgive you, but I'll give you life in heaven with me forever. And so no matter what it is that you do, you're still going to fall short. And so the joy of the Christian life is not ever being perfect because none of us get there. It's about being forgiven by Jesus. And that's why Paul says that the Christian life is not so much about rules and regulations. It's about forgiveness and love and joy. And these things should be behind every work that we do. And then he goes on and gives us another piece of advice. He goes, we probably need to get to a place where we're reevaluating some of our activities. I think a lot of people are looking for joy in the wrong places today. He compares the value of religion to the value of relationship with Christ and says there's just no, there's no comparison here. He had been a very religious person, but he was still lost. In verse 7 and 8, he says this, But whatever was to my profit, all those things I had been doing, I now consider lost for the sake of Christ. 
What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. Now, in this, this, this brief verse, he's using profit one time, lost three times, is kind of Paul's profit and loss statement, right? And all the things he, he, he talked about before, all the things that were in the list, he says, I consider loss as worthless. For what he realizes, the only thing that really mattered was Jesus, because he was the only one that could forgive sins. He was the only one that could make him right with God. And so in that, he gives us a second safeguard, which is this. We've got to keep our priorities in perspective. It was the very first chapter where we talked about priority and perspective. And as life comes at us, it's hard to keep that, isn't it? Because we get zoomed in on the health issue, or we get zoomed in on the relational struggle, or we get zoomed in on the money issue, or, or whatever it is, and we forget that we have the most powerful entity in the whole universe on our side. So we've got to get to a place where we know what's important. What is our profit and loss statement? Because we've we got to get to a place where we don't lose our joy all the time over things that really don't matter. The number one people, reason people lose their joy in our world today is because they have misplaced priorities. They get too involved in things that aren't really going to be all that important in the end. Paul's saying that what matters most is not your prestige or your pedigree or your possessions or your position or your power. You can have it all and still be miserable, and there's plenty of examples of that. Even Jesus says this in Luke 12. He says, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Because contrary to the old Miller-like commercial that said you could have it all, you can't. Verse 8 talks about this. Life consists of a series of trade-offs. And I think that's an important life lesson for us to learn. He said you have to give up something in order sometimes to get something new and better. You have to give up your single life if you want to have this amazing marriage. You can't have both marriage and single life at the same time or you destroy both. You can't be a boss and also not have responsibility, at least not that I'm aware of, right? That would be a great gig otherwise. But you have to have both, because if you don't have both, they'll destroy each other. Paul's saying the same thing. He said, I gave up my religion in order to have a relationship with Jesus. I've met churchgoers in the past that I think lose sight of that. They're all into how it is that we need to do this and this and this in order to, to be an effective service, whether on the traditional or on the contemporary side. They said, no, it has to be done this way and not this way. And they lose the sight that the church is about Jesus. It's not about A or B, it's, it's about Jesus. And when we get in our little fiefdoms and we get in our little sides, we lose sight of the most important things, always. And that's why Paul continues, and, and all the way through the New Testament, it continues to call us to this thing called unity. As I said, the number one reason why people don't have joy in their life is because they lose sight of priorities. They're afraid that they're going to have to give up something in order to become a Christian. And you know what? They're right. I have a best friend from high school, and I use him periodically as an uh, example. Um, but he said to me one time, he said, he said, Mike, I'm just not ready to give my life to, to God. And I, and I said, well, why? And he said, I, I don't want to give up being in charge. I love the honesty. I wish everybody would be that honest. But what I loved about it is that he accurately understood that to give his life to Jesus, he had to give everything up. He had to let God be in charge. There's a lot of Christians sometimes that I think miss that because there is a legitimate loss when we give our life to Jesus. Because he says, you need to give up everything for me. It's total commitment. 
And that's scary and that's hard. Until you realize that what we get is so much greater than what we gave up. For example, you gave up all your guilt and you got forgiveness and a clear conscience. You gave up your worry and you gain a power for living and peace. I was talking to the Wednesday morning class again and I was saying, you know, about a year ago I started actually, you know, doing what I was preaching. And I, every time I would start to worry or be anxious, I would start praying about it and God would give me peace. I said, it's like the greatest thing ever. Because instead of wasting hours and hours, I've trusted his promise and as a result he's given me He's given me peace and I can go to sleep or I can not stress or I can not get into those little cycles where we keep going and going. You give up your frustration and lack of purpose and he gives you a real meaning and a purpose for life. You give up going to hell and he gives you the gift of heaven. That's a pretty good deal. He, you give up trying to solve all your problems in your own power and you gain having the resources of God to solve your problems. Again, over and over, a great trade-off. Jim Elliott, a missionary, once said this, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep for that which he cannot lose. And so one of the questions is, what is it that you're afraid to give up for God? And the reality is, is whatever it is, that is usually the very thing that's robbing you of your joy right now. And then he goes on and gives us this last piece of advice, and he says this, we also need to refocus our ambitions. He said, lasting joy comes from knowing Christ better and better. I think we implicitly know that, that the closer we get to Jesus, the more we hear his truths, his promises, the more they start infiltrating our life and start making a difference. Paul says it this way in verse 10. He says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his suffering, becoming like him in his death. Again, just for perspective, when you came in this morning, is that, was, was that your attitude? You were so excited about clinging to Jesus and getting to know him better and being somehow moved by the things that he would say in service that you were just like, ah, I can't wait to get in there. Paul says the number one goal that he had in life was to know Christ better and better. So I'll ask you, how well do you know Jesus? I know a lot of Christians that have been Christians 5, 10, 20 years or more. And they don't really know Jesus very well at all. It's akin to when I was first in ministry, a pastor said I could do 20, 30 years in ministry or I could do one year 20 or 30 times. And if you do one year 20 or 30 times, you're really not growing, you're really not developing, you're just going through the same thing over and over and over. And there's a lot of Christians that come to church with the same attitude. Instead of 20 or 30 years studying the Bible and growing close to the Lord and, and developing friendships and, and seeing miracles and, and all these things that build our faith, we do the same thing year after year after year and wonder why we don't grow. The word know in the Greek is the word yada. It means to know intimately, to know experientially. I found an amplified version that describes this value, I think, more clearly. It says it this way. For my determined purpose is that I may know Christ, that I may progressively become more deeply and intimately acquainted with him, perceiving and recognizing and understanding him more strongly and more clearly. So the kind of knowledge is personal, it's progressive, it's continuing, it's ongoing, because there's a big difference from knowing about someone to actually knowing someone. And so here's the third safeguard. He says we've got to get to know Christ better. Never stop growing or developing in your faith, because the moment you stop growing is the moment you start losing your joy. So many Christians stay way too close to where they got in in the Christian life. They haven't grown a bit since they first believed in Jesus. And then they wonder why they don't see his power or answer prayer or, or, or that peace that pastor keeps talking about or whatever it is. And so you start wondering, how do we grow closer to Jesus? 
And, and scripture gives us three ways all the way through, and they're simple, but sometimes they're hard. First thing he calls us to do is give them time. It takes time to get to know anybody in any relationship. It takes time to get to know God, too. And you need to spend some time alone with him, right, to get to know him. You need to sit down with your Bible, which is where he talks to you, where you read it, where you pray, where you're talking with God about what you want, what you need, listening to his sermons, right? taking time just to spend with him. So many Christians, I think, wait until they're in a big crowd, like on Sunday morning, to even think about Jesus. But that just makes growing with them harder. Think about when you were first dating, right? You wanted to get to know the other person. You called them all the time. You stayed up till like midnight or one or two in the morning until the other person fell asleep, right? You wanted to get to know them, and so you spent all this time. Now imagine you're dating, but you had to take 200 of your best friends with you, all right? How easy would it be to get to know that person with 200 other people just hanging around all the time? A lot harder. The same is true with God. There's times where we just need to get alone, where it's just him and us, where we can share that spot, right? Where we have the most fear, the most worry, the most concern, the most stress, the most guilt, and we finally let him in. We need to get to those places where we can be real with God and we can hear anew, where we make it personal and we make it real. And then he says, you need to talk to, not, you need to, talk to me, and we call that prayer. Relationships have to have communication. I remember I was, um, I don't know if I was dating her or not. I, I was sending all these emails out when I was at seminary to a girl I had met and when I was on Vicarage. And all the emails kept going out and they kept going out, but I never got any back. It was a very weird relationship because I never heard from her. Turns out we weren't dating, so that explained a whole lot of things. But the reality is it takes both-way communication. And so we talked to him. We listen to him talk to us through his word, and then we talk back to him through prayer. Jesus is saying, kind of condemning his hearers in this way, but he's saying this to his disciples, until now you have not asked for anything in my name. And he's like, why? Ask and your joy will be complete. So Paul gives us this little equation. He says, much prayer equals much joy in your life. Little prayer equals little joy. No prayer equals no joy. And then I'll just go to this last one, which is trust. Relationships are built on trust. If you don't trust the person, you can't have much of a relationship with them. And God wants you to learn to trust him. And I think that's hard when he makes these promises. <laughs> because then life complicates those promises and we struggle to believe. And when we struggle to believe, we miss out on their power. And so to help us, he allows sometimes difficulties into our life so that we can learn that he's reliable all the time that God is reliable in every situation, that he can be counted on to be faithful. And the reality is that you don't learn this overnight, usually. It's learned over years of going through problems and then seeing God pull you through time after time after time. You learn this experientially. And as you go through problems, you learn to trust God because you begin to realize as he takes you through these problems that he's faithful in yet another area of your life. One of the first times I experienced God just coming through, I was a little kid and I was having all these nightmares and my mom came in and she was like, I just read this. And she says, you can say in Jesus' name, Satan be gone. And he'll take away not only Satan, but all your bad thoughts and bad dreams with him. I said, all right. And I started praying it. And you know, every time since then, every time I've had a, a bad dream, God's taken away. I mean, sometimes I've had to say it twice, but every single time, he is faithful without fail. And if he can do it in that area of my life, you know what? It gives me confidence that he can do it in another area of my life and then another area of my life and then another area of my life. One of the greatest things you could ever do is develop a prayer journal where you pray and then you write down when God answers. 
it, it would change the way you look at how faithful God is to even your prayers, let alone his promises. Paul says this, that the number one ambition of his life is to know Christ at the end of his life. Perspective, he's in jail in Rome, he's getting ready to die, he already knew Christ already, but he wanted to know him even better. Why? Because he knew that the answer to his problems, to America's problems, to the Philippians' problems, was not religion, it was Jesus. The joy comes from knowing Jesus. We talked about before how we have a nation right now that's trending more and more negative, and people are experiencing less and less joy. They need Jesus. And it begins usually with a prayer that says, God, I want to know you more personally. I want to let you into those places that I've kind of kept you at arm's length. And it ends with Jesus telling you how much he loves you. And that you're forgiven for everything. And that he will be with you now until he's ready to take you home to be with him forever in heaven. My friends, that's the secret to joy. Focusing on what Jesus has done for you and reminding ourselves that that makes a difference. And all God's people said, amen. Let us pray. God, we thank you so much for sending your son, Jesus. I think in that we see where we can be blown away a little bit by the love that you have for us, realizing how much you hate sin and us realizing how much we do it. And yet you didn't want to see everybody destroyed and so you sent us Jesus so that there could be a way to right that relationship between you and us so that we could be forgiven and so that we could be with you. Father, not only do you promise us heaven and that forgiveness, but you also promise to walk every step as we go through life and you promise to give us strength and peace and hope in the midst of life's uncertainties and difficulties and hardships. You just call us to trust you. And so, Father, today we pray increase our trust. Help us to trust you for more and more in our life. And we pray this in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen.